Well, this morning, if you will, turn with me to the book of Isaiah. I just felt compelled this morning to take a, a bit of a break from our work through the Gospel of Matthew with the events of our community this week. I just felt that it was important that we as a community focus on the sovereignty of God today. Many questions are running through people's minds as they process why such tragedies can affect us. And the tornadoes of March the 3rd clearly have impacted our community for, for years to come. So if you're able to stand with me, let us begin by reading Isaiah 45, verses 1 through 8 together. Isaiah 45, beginning in verse 1. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places, that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name for the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel, my chosen. I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for your word. And dear God, you tell us and you remind us of how sovereign you are. You create all things. You cause all things to be. And in the midst of sorrow and tragedy, Father, we question why. Did you cause and did you create even catastrophe and sorrow? Your ways are beyond us, Lord. And so we depend on you for understanding. And I pray, God, that you would love us this morning, that you would love our community here in Cookville, all families who have been impacted. Father, we lift them up to you this morning. Even in this congregation, Father, we have lost some. And we know those who have been lost. Help us to rebuild, help us to move forward, help us to love, help us to stand strong, 
Help us, Father, to show your glory in the midst of this. And through Christ's name we pray all. In Jesus' name, amen. God bless you. The idea that bad things happen is something we cannot avoid. We live in a fallen world. We live in a world that is full of disease, tornadoes, hurricanes, earthquakes, fires, destruction, human beings treating each other badly. Evil is a moral question, but it's also a natural question. And oftentimes in seasons like this when our communities are facing what we face this week, the unexpected happens in a way that causes us to wake up to the reality that, number one, we are not God. We wake, uh, uh, if you woke up Tuesday morning and realized what was happening in our community, perhaps your reaction was one of numbness, perhaps your reaction was one of confusion, perhaps your reaction was one of action, we've got to go do something. But as the tornadoes hit Monday night into Tuesday morning, many of us woke up grateful that we had a bed to sleep in. Many of us woke up grateful that a new day was here. But many in our community did not have that privilege. I just actually learned this number this morning. 395 homes are leveled. That's just the ones that are leveled. Hundreds more, I'm certain, are damaged. How many lives were living in those homes that are now impacted? Not just the residents of those houses, but the families extended, co-workers, friends, church families. What happened in our community this week is something that affects all of us, and we are, st- we are still a small enough micropolitan community. You know, that's our new title. We're now a micropolitan community. I'm not sure exactly what the definition of that is. I think we've reached a certain population level, but we're no longer a small town. We're not a metropolitan, but we are a micropolitan. But at the same time, we're still a very county-driven community as well. And when when, When activities like this happen, when tragedies happen, we see what we would describe as natural evil. The very definition of that which is outside of the normal. We have that which is moral evil, and that's how we treat one another. And then we have that which is natural evil that we look at as something that clearly is tragic and outside of our control, yet somehow is not right. That's the definition of evil. What we see here in Isaiah 45, I think, will help us, and I'm going to look at a few other passages of Scripture as well, to try to help us navigate biblically exactly God's role in all things. We may look at the events of this week and think, God does not love us, God has abandoned us, where is God? Because the problem of evil tells us, How can a holy and righteous, loving God exist while at the same time evil and destruction exist? There is a logical disconnect there 
that we always wrestle with. And logically, it makes absolutely no sense. Let's just confess that. Logically, it makes no sense. How can a good and holy, righteous God exist while at the same time evil exists? Because the two don't reconcile. Yet, biblically, we see that it does happen. And how does it happen? Let's take a look at what the Scriptures have to say. In Proverbs chapter 3, verse 19, we see, "...the Lord by wisdom founded the earth." By understanding, he established the heavens. We must know that in the beginning, God created all things, the heavens and the earth. And in Proverbs chapter 3, there is wisdom by understanding that it is God who founded the earth, caused the earth to be. And by understanding, he established the heavens. He established the heavens and the earth. He is the original source of all that there is. We cannot ignore that. Amen? In Isaiah chapter 45, when we look at at verse 7, we see that God tells us through the prophet Isaiah, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. And we see the the wisdom of Solomon telling us in Ecclesiastes chapter 7, beginning in verse 13, Consider the work of God. Who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider. God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. It's interesting here that we are seeing some passages of Scripture that seem to indicate that God is the cause of, of all things. He forms the light and he creates the darkness. He creates that which is crooked and we as human beings have no power to straighten it out. The Lord founded the heaven and the earth and who are we to understand that? That's important for us to establish here in this time because as we have a lot of confusion and misunderstanding, as we have a lot of doubts and fears and perhaps even anger toward God, we must remember that who God is. God is He who causes all things to happen. He causes the earth to be. God causes your ability to be here. He causes your existence. He causes your very being, the fact that you're breathing, the fact that you have awareness, the fact that you are sitting here in this moment, God causes all of that. Let's not forget that. That's very important foundation for us to understand how it is that tragedy can occur and God still be important and relevant and even present. St. John of Damascus says this about God. He says, God can do all that he wills even though he does not will all things that he can do. For he can destroy creation, but he does not will to do so. That's an important thing to ponder here for a second. If God is the creator of all that there is, and God causes all things to be, therefore God then has the power to stop it if he wishes. But his will is something that is stronger than what 
many of us may say God must or must not do. We spoke about this several months ago where we looked in the book of Proverbs and we looked at the idea that it is God's freedom of his own will that is stronger than man's will. God has the freedom to do or not to do. That is his power. That is his strength. That is his sovereignty. When we try to understand God's sovereignty, we must understand exactly biblically what that looks like. We have established pretty clearly here that God is the founder of the heavens and the earth. God is the one who brings both light and darkness. God is the one who makes things crooked, and we as his creatures have no power or ability to straighten it. But God can do all that he wills, even though he does not will all things that he can do. For he can destroy creation, but he does not will to do so. Let's remember that. Another idea here is that God's power, God does have power. And when we look at uh, the power of nature that we have seen this week, God is the creator of all of that. God's power, though, is greater than his work. So let's remember that as well. God does work to create all that there is, but God's power is greater than even that work that he made. And so God's power is greater than his work in which he permits other things outside himself also to have power. Let's ponder that for a minute. Even though God is the creator and the cause of all that there is, in God's will and in his power, he also gives other things power outside of himself. You and I have the power to wake up in the morning and choose how to live that day. Even though God has directed our steps, even though God does set things up for us, his providence, the power of his hand is controlling all of what we do. Even in the fact that God is controlling all that we do, he is also giving us the, the power to act on our own. I don't know that God is a puppet master that wakes us up with us not wanting to be woken up and makes us do things that we have no power to control either. The biggest part of God's power is that he also permits other things outside himself to have power. Yet, while he's allowing that power to continue, God is still in control of that power. Boggles the mind. God, as the creator of all heavens and earth, also creates weather patterns and creates seasons. But in that power of his creation, he has also given power to nature that he controls, yet he also allows nature to act in its own power at the same time. We look at this idea in theology called God's omnipotence. Let's try to understand exactly what this looks like here. When we look in Isaiah chapter 45, we see that God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah. And he, and he definitely emphasizes that the power of Cyrus the anointed king, Cyrus the pagan, coming through and subduing nations, tearing down gates, leveling exalted places in verse 2, breaking pieces of doors of bronze, cutting through bars of iron. That's, that's pretty powerful stuff. 
It says here that, in, beginning in verse 4 of Isaiah chapter 45, For the sake of my servant Jacob and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. That's God's power. Verse 5, I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. We must establish this truth today. God is who he is. There is no other. He establishes who he is. He even has the power to call us by name. He has the power to choose who he wishes to choose. He has the power to cause things to happen as he desires it to happen. Verse 6, that people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. That is important for us to understand in this moment of sorrow and grief and tragedy and loss that God is God and there is no other. Amen? Because we can have doubts that there is some power stronger than God. As a tornado comes and destroys homes and takes lives and shatters communities, we must remember that God is still God and there is no other. Because if we allow the power of a destructive tornado to become more powerful in our spirits than God is powerful, then we have now substituted something before God. I am the Lord and there is no other. He says in verse 7, I form light and I create darkness. I make well-being and I create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Now that is very confusing. It causes turmoil within the spirit. How can God who loves us, who forms light and creates darkness, also direct well-being and create calamity? How can he in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 consider the work of God who can make straight what he has made crooked? In the days of prosperity, verse 14, be joyful, and in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. I think the words of the teacher in Ecclesiastes chapter 7 helps us navigate through this problem today. If God is the one who forms light and creates darkness, who makes well-being and creates calamity, why does he do so? In Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verses 14, In the day of prosperity be joyful. This is wisdom for us in those days where we are prosperous and safe. We are to be joyful. How many of us are joyful in the midst of our prosperity and our security and our safety? Are we joyful? Absolutely. But in verse 14, In the day of adversity, consider that God has made the one as well as the other so that man may not find out anything that will be after him. Why is it that adversity comes? Why is it that God has made life difficult for man? When we look at Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 15, if you'll flip over there. Actually, let's begin in verse 12. 
I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has, been, has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge, and I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind. I think what we can understand here biblically is that what is crooked cannot be made straight, and it is God who has made things crooked, and we do not have the power to straighten it out. Why is it that God does this? I think it is that God has made life difficult for us. He has made our paths crooked. God has caused this. Why? I think biblically we see here is that so that we may not find out God's Secrets. We may try as human beings to understand what it is that is happening in a fallen and broken world. And the attempt to fully grasp what is happening is something that brings us confusion and anxiety. I think rightly so. And how can we make sense of something that is unsensible? How can we make sense of something that is beyond our comprehension? And I think that is at the root of what we will be dealing with in the weeks to come following these tragedies of this week, as we have lost loved ones, as friends and family and co-workers are trying to rebuild and, and cope with the trauma of what they have gone through. God in His wisdom and in His sovereignty, His power is that He will cause things to be crooked. He has made our life difficult for this purpose is so that we have no power ourselves to be more powerful than God. It is to remind us of our state as creatures rather than creator. Now we could sit here and say, well, what kind of a maniacal being like God would cause that to happen? Let's try to understand this a little bit deeper. Let's try to pull back some of the layers here of what God is doing. I think what we have to understand here, when we talk about God's omnipotence, and that is a theological term that people like to toss around, literally means that God is all-powerful. What does that mean? Yes, God has the power to do anything that He wants, but that doesn't mean that God can cause an orange to be a banana. God cannot cause things to be what they are not. That's His power. He can do anything He wants. God's power, though, and here is, we've got some classical tensions here between what classical theology would say and what some modern ways of thinking would bring into this, and this is where we need to try to wrestle with what's going on biblically. There's this idea that God's power is not actually the causality over everything. Rather, God's power is in His infinite readiness and love, which I think that is very... There, there's some parts of that that's true. God, God's greatest power is His power to love and to redeem. 
We see this in Isaiah chapter 45, beginning in verse 8. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open, that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. On this, I, on this aspect, I will agree that the greatest power that God has is the power of salvation. He has the power to redeem and to heal. I think that's His greatest power. That is stronger than even the created order that there is, that He controls, that He causes, that He directs. But that does not mean that God is limited in what He does. That's where I think we can get into trouble here. To say that God's power is not the cause of all things, rather God's power is only in His readiness to redeem and heal, I think there's a danger in that, in that we'd say now God is not the cause of all that there is. That's where we get into trouble. But I think the greater power here that we can see is that God's greatest power is His restraint. His greatest power is that He has the power to redeem and to recover and to love and to show us His mercy and show us His love and affection for us. Now, the greatest power that God has as well is that God's greatest power clearly is not restricted. God's greatest power is that He has the direction and the, the will to do what He wants. In other words, it is both His power to will and His power not to will. God, that is God's sovereign power. He has the power to will something. He has the power not to will something. God is not forced into some system of necessary laws of nature as we presume them to be. The idea that somehow God must be limited by the laws of nature is something that can limit His sovereignty. God is the one who established the laws of nature. And we see this in the Gospels especially as Jesus Christ Himself controls the winds and the waves We see this all throughout Scripture, even with Moses, as God says, I will part the seas and you, my people, will walk through. God can control all of nature. He can can distort, He can stop the laws of nature if it is in His power and will and desire to do so. He'll do it. But the question is, must He? You see, God is not bound by what He must do. God is not bound by what He must will or have wanted to will based on the established nature or laws of nature. Even though God does establish the laws of nature, those laws of nature do not limit Him. Let's remember that. But I think the greater thing that we can take away here is this, that it belongs to God's will not to will many things. What does that mean? Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. Turn with me to Philippians chapter 2. In Philippians chapter 2, we see the idea here, the biblical idea of the focus of the gospel is that God's will is to not do all things. His will is to do, I'm only going to do what? I'm actually going to limit what we're doing here without diminishing His power. We see here in Philippians chapter 2, 
The example of Christ shows us this. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this in mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped or exploited, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, before we misunderstand this text, it has... There have been those who have claimed that Jesus willingly set aside his divine nature. That's not what this text means. Jesus did not set aside his divine nature at all. He was fully God with all the rights, privileges, and power thereto, while also being human. This does not mean that God willingly, as he stepped into reality and stepped into humanity as Jesus is incarnated. That does not mean that God stopped being God. What this means in Philippians chapter 2 and what we're trying to say here is that God's greatest power that is greater and stronger than even the tornadoes and the hurricanes and the earthquakes is that God loved us so much that He steps into our tragedies He steps into our messes. He steps into our sinful existence. And he willingly chose that. He never gave up his power. He never set it aside or diminished it at all. But the greatest power God has is that his will was, I love my people so much, I'm going to go to them in the midst of their sinful state. I'm going to them in the midst of their tragedies and their sorrow. And I am not just going to stand there as a God outside of the situation. I'm going right into the middle of it. And I'm going to love them and I'm going to experience everything they're experiencing. I'm going to experience their sorrows and their their weeping. I'm going to experience their tragedies and their grief. I'm going to be right there in the middle of a fallen, broken world right with them as, as one of them. That's the greater power at work here. And so it belongs to God's will not to will many things. That's what we mean here. In verse 6, speaking of Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing. It doesn't mean that Christ emptied himself of divinity. It means that he willingly set aside, he willingly chose not to stop planet Earth, human existence. He allowed it to continue, and he goes right in. See, Scripture does describe God as having unlimited, unbounded power. We see this in Psalm 147. Great is our Lord and mighty in power. His understanding is infinite. We see in Psalm 115 as well, Ours is the God whose will is sovereign in the heavens 
and on earth. God's power is unlimited. It's unbounded. There is nothing that will stop or limit or frame God into a box. And the problem or or the, the caution that we have in times of tragedy and sorrow is that really we are angry with God because God is not working within the boundaries of our man-made box. God, we want you to stop these things. We want you to stop the tragedies. We want you to stop the tornadoes. We want you to stop the loss of life. And God's greatest power is His will not to do that. Even though God establishes and causes all things, His greatest power is, I know you want me to stop these things, but if I do so, you're not going to see my love in the middle of it. The greatest love is that God is right here in the midst of our tears and our sorrow. He's right here in the midst of our recovery efforts. God does cause all things. But He also allows those the natural laws that He established to be what they are as well. You see, the greater biblical perspective here shows that God's unbounded power to be actually the boundlessness of His love, the boundlessness of God's grace and mercy, His love for us, is the stronger power than His ability to stop a tornado. Yes, it would be awesome if God just said, no more hurricanes, no more tornadoes, no more thunderstorms, no more earthquakes, no more disease, no more death. But God's greater power is His love for us and that He is in the midst of us. Because here's the thing, if God were to stop all that we saw as evil, and yes, all things that we see as evil are what they are, it is evil. If God were to stop all evil, let's ponder and think about what God would also have to do. He would also have to stop us, because we are at our core as sinful fallen people evil. And He loves us too much for that. So in the midst of even the tragedies and sorrows and the destruction, God's greatest power is the boundlessness of His love. You see, God's, God is not power that does what we want Him to do in our understanding. God's power is that which transcends our understanding. And God's power is that, and His will is He wants to exercise His power to liberate and redeem a lost and human race. He wants to redeem us. That's His will. That's the greatest power. God's power is not unrestricted or arbitrary as we want it to be, but His power is His power of suffering love. He, under, he, he understands our suffering while we do not understand His sovereignty. Let's ponder that for a second. God's greatest power is that He fully understands our suffering when He doesn't have to, while we have limited understanding of His sovereignty. You see, God is a destroyer and a redeemer. God does destroy and He does redeem. But when God destroys, He does so in order to redeem. Now, God does not cause evil. I want to make sure that we understand this. Even though God is the cause of all things, He is the great originator of all that there is. He caused all of the existence of the universe to be. But that does not mean He caused evil. That's what you and I did. We ushered in evil into this world in our sinful rebellion. But that's the natural outcome of God giving us 
the ability to think and reason outside of robotic circumstances. We're not robots. We're not machines. He gave us His image, His ability to think and reason, limited yet still able to do so. And in that, if God gave us the willing ability to think and to choose and to be and to do, the natural outcome of that is we have to choose between something. We choose between good or we choose between evil. And the sinful, sinful reality is we choose evil. But God does not cause evil, but he does act in the midst of evil in order to bring out the greatest good for his glory. And lastly, God wills to not be... He may not... And this is where I'm kind of torn. Does God will to not be the direct cause of all things and allow evil to happen? Yes and no. God does control evil for his purposes, but yet in the midst of that, he still has to allow evil to be evil too. But God is sovereign over all causes. He is the sovereign over all realities. He is the sovereign over all things. We have to remember that God is the supreme actor of all of reality. He is the primary force of all that there is. But amongst all of that, there are actors and events that act independently of God, yet still are under his control. That's, that's the kind of the paradoxical dilemma that's difficult for us to grasp. Because if God is the, the creator of all things and the cause of all things, does that mean that we as individual actors and even the natural order of hurricanes and storms, does that mean that these things don't act on their own as well? You know, it would be nice if God were just to initiate a weather control system and we just push the button and say, okay, God, uh, this week we want bright sunny sunshine and 74 degrees with no humidity. That's what we think. We want control. We want, we want God to give us perfection, yet God in His power also allows the natural order of things to act on its own too. It's both and. Yet God is in control of it all. Does that mean that God is to be blamed? Does this mean that God is guilty of innocent life lost? That's the tension that many will be facing in the coming weeks as they process this. On Tuesday afternoon, I was at the church across the way here, Church on the Hill, because I was called in, I was literally contacted, will you come? And I sat with families as they were identifying the bodies of their lost loved ones. And one young man in his 20s who lost his little six-year-old boy, he was unconsolable. He was just beyond, beyond any kind of comfort. Wailing that was the be- is about the best description that you can describe his, his reaction in the moment, just wailing. Asking why. And in those kind of situations, you would, you would have to understand that in, in the mind is, why God are you causing this? Why God are you allowing this? Why could you not have stopped this? What we have to understand here is that God wills what He wills, and He does not will what He does not will. And it is very possible that God did not will for this child to survive the storm. 
while at the same time not being blamed for taking the life. It's both and, I think. Which is very confusing for us because that doesn't make logical sense. And I think what we see in Scripture is very clear. That God is God. And we are not. Let's flip over here to Job real quickly. I know we're going a little bit long today. Job chapter 40, beginning in verse 1. This is God's response to Job. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? He who argues with God, let him answer it. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am of small account. What shall I answer you? I lay my hand on my mouth. I have spoken once, and I will not answer twice, but I will proceed no further. Notice Job's response here to God. In previous chapter, Job is just bemoaning and and wailing against God. Look at how righteous I am, yet you still allow these things to happen. And God's response is pretty direct. And the Lord said to Job, Shall a fault finder contend with the Almighty? In other words, who are we to argue with God? Verse 6, Then the Lord answered Job, Out of the whirlwind. Because that is how his presence was manifest. And he says, verse 7, Dress for action like a man. I will question you and you make it known to me. This phrase here in chapter 40, verse 7 of Job, Dress for action like a man, is a repeated phrase throughout the book of Job. And this is what God says to Job often, repeatedly. Dress for action like a man as you listen to my response to you, Job. What does this mean? That God is saying, be a human being for a minute and place yourself in the status of creation, creature, while your creator speaks. God loves us, but he is also sovereign and powerful. And what he does is often many times beyond our understanding. And at the end of Job, the book of Job, chapter 42, after God speaks to Job and reminds him of his place, Job chapter 42, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. Therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. You see, Job sees God truly through the tragedies of his life that God himself permitted to happen. In Job chapter 19, Job sees God as his Redeemer in the midst of all of the tragedy. So what can we learn from this for ourselves? Is that in the midst of tragedy and sorrow, it is possible for us to see God's love and his redemption for us. And I'll close with this this reading from a book that I didn't really find the time to make the notes, but I just felt I'd bring the book in here today. I'm not going to read a lot. I'm just going to read a paragraph or two. 
As I was thinking this morning, this, this uh, book came to mind. It is a book of uh, a volume of Ichabod Spencer, a pastor who uh, just kept records and diaries of his pastoral visits with people and the different theological questions that he had to answer. He says this, he says, Things hidden belong to God. Let me, rem- let me say that again. Things hidden belong to God. Things revealed belong to us. Little is gained by attempting to invade the province of God's mysteries. Every man will attempt it. Such is human nature. Mind will not willingly stop at the boundaries which God has for the present prescribed for it. But in vain will it strive to overpass them. We know in part when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. There was one great reason why we cannot know everything, simply because we are not God. The only real religious utility which grows out of the attempt to understand things not revealed to us is to be found in the fact that such an attempt may humble us. It may show us what inferior beings we are, how ignorant how hemmed in on every side, and thus compel us to give God his own high place, infinitely above us, and hence infinitely beyond us. A comprehensible God is no God at all. For what is comprehensible is not infinite. Let men beware of intruding into those things which they have not seen, vainly puffed up, with their fleshly mind. So how do we respond to tragedy and sorrow in our community? We respond by being present as God himself is present. God is the great comforter, 2 Corinthians chapter 1. And as God comforts us, we now know how to comfort others. Perhaps part of God's unknowable purpose is just that. God is just showing us His compassion and love for us through His Son, Jesus Christ, through the redemption available through Christ's blood, through that ever-present comfort that we have as His people. And in the midst of tragedy and sorrow, we don't have all the answers. And any attempt by human beings to have all the answers of what God is thinking or what God is doing will ultimately result in a vain attempt to know. God uses tragedy to bring us to an awareness of how humble we are. doesn't mean that it's going to be easy. does not mean that God purposefully caused the death of innocence just for that. There's probably many, many layers of things that God is thinking and doing in the midst of tragedy and sorrow. It cannot be known with a simple, pithy answer, as many will try to do. Well, we must remind ourselves through Scripture and through experiences and circumstances that we are facing this week is that God is sovereign. But we have to understand the definition of sovereignty is that God is just not some maniacal being who will do what he wants to do and cause suffering as he wants to. He has 
greater power than we can fathom. And it could be that his power is willing not to do something as well. Who, are, who is it for us to know? The only thing that we can take away from this is that we are humble and we are finite, meaning that we are limited. Yet God's very essence, His very being, His very wisdom, His very power is infinite, unlimited, beyond our comprehension. And any attempts by ourselves to try to know this is something that will bring confusion to us and anger and turmoil. doesn't mean that we should not reach out to God and beg for His understanding. That is exactly part of it. God wants us to want Him. God wants us to need Him. God wants us to call to Him and come to Him. And He will reveal to us what He wants us to be known. And He will hold that which is mysterious as He wishes to hold that which is mysterious. And in the process, what do we do? We trust. Even in the midst of crying and weeping. As families in our community have already begun laying their loved ones to rest, funerals have already begun. And you may be at some of these funerals. Let me encourage you just to love on people, not try to have answers. In the midst of weeping and sorrow, someone in the midst of their grief doesn't need an answer necessarily. They, what they need is our presence. The answers will come later, maybe, maybe not. But life goes on. And God's glory is revealed. Let's pray. Dear God, we love you and we thank you for your word. And I pray, God, that you will cause us to understand what it means that you are all-powerful. It does not mean, Lord, that you are looking over us for opportunities to cause us harm. But it does mean, dear God, that you may willingly allow harm to come. Even though Isaiah tells us that you do cause well-being and you do cause calamity. Ultimately, God, you are doing so for your own understanding and not for ours. But you're doing so to draw us to your presence. You're doing so to bring our awareness and our minds and our beings closer to you. I pray for your mercies upon our communities I pray for your mercies upon families who are burying loved ones even now. And I pray for your mercies upon this church, this congregation, as we deal with our own loss, as we deal even with our own sorrow and grief. Help us, God, we pray, to be that light that you would like for us to be, that you desire us to be, you have given us, a job to do, and that is to be light of Christ here and now. In whatever way that manifests itself, Lord, cause that to be, and let it be for your glory alone. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.